Hi, this is Jonathan Clements, Director of Financial Education here at Creative Planning in Overland Park, Kansas, and I'm here with Peter Malouk, President of Creative Planning, and we are down the middle. It's October 1. We're deep into the fall. We're uh, looking towards the end of the year, and a lot of people at this point of the year are starting to think about their portfolios and thinking about taking tax losses, thinking about whether it's time for rebalance and so on. And one of the issues that you'd mentioned to me, Peter, was people who have substantial holdings of a single stock and what they should do about it. And I guess this is something you come across with clients all the time. Yeah, you see a lot, a lot of folks either worked for a company where they had the company stock and, and it's done well, so they hold it, or they they made a bunch of picks a long time ago and a couple of them are wind up being amazing and they, they hold them uh, forever. And oftentimes we'll hold them for tax reasons. If we sell them, we're going to lose 20 to 30 percent in, in federal and, cap, and state capital gains taxes. And so you think, well, that's a pretty big hit. So we'll just work around them. But the problem with that is every stock eventually dies. So every company eventually dies and it means the stock eventually dies if you look at the companies that were in the original Dow when GE dropped off, it became the last one uh, to drop off. And companies that no one could ever fathom closing, you know, decades ago, like Sears, I mean, they have their day. And, and it will happen to companies uh, like Netflix and companies that no one can imagine it can happen to, like Amazon someday, too. So if you have that philosophy, I'm going to hold that stock forever. Let's just pretend you had that, you know, 30, 40 years ago. The odds are very great that stock has, has really uh, done you a disservice as of today. Of course, there are exceptions as there are to everything. So the goal should be, how do I get that stock under control as a, as a portion of my portfolio and diversify it? And there are a lot of different ways to approach that. So you know, one easy choice is I'm just going to sell some of it and pay the taxes. And I'm going to sell a little bit every year and just accept that I'm going to pay the taxes. That's the least tax effective way to do it, but it solves the too many eggs in one basket problem. The only p- people I would recommend do that are people where almost all all their money or, or their independence is dependent on this one stock. You know, in those scenarios, it does make sense to uh, diversify and take the tax hit because the risk is so great if the stock doesn't work out of you not being independent. Um, oftentimes, you know, I had a case uh, where there was a married couple and this person was an executive in a financial services firm and they had one and a half million dollars in one stock and almost nothing outside of it. Uh, but he was terminally ill. And we actually transferred the stock, which had been owned a little bit by both of them, all to him. And when he passed, there was a step up in basis, which basically means the wife could sell it all tax-free. Um, that's a, a really rare deal. But I mean, if you're older uh, and you have highly appreciated stock, maybe it does make sense to hold uh, to hold that stock and then get the step up on, on death. Um, so some more practical options for people, everyday folks that don't want to pay the taxes and, and they're not, you know, 90. Um, the biggest one is you've, you've got another, you've got other investments and you look for opportunities to tax harvest. So if you own, say, the S&P 500 and it's dropped into negative territory and you can sell it and replace it with the S&P 100, which is 99% correlated, you stay invested in the large cap U.S. market, but you now have a loss on your tax return. You can now sell some of the concentrated stock and take the loss and offset it with the gain and pay no taxes and increase your diversification. If you're charitably inclined, um, there are a couple solutions available to you. So you could take some of that stock, put in a charitable remainder trust, that's an irrevocable trust. That trust can then sell the stock tax-free, and the trust can give you income back for the rest of your life, and even for your spouse's life, and maybe your kid's life. And then the catch is, and it's a big catch, is on your death, 
no one in your family gets that money, it has to go to charity. Um, but it's a great way to diversify and get, get income. And it's an interesting tool because let's say you have $100,000 in a stock and you sell it and you wind up with, say, seventy five, and you live off 6% of that. If instead you put the 100000 in a charitable trust and sell it, you have 100 And if you live off 6% of that, that's a bigger number. So you diversify and have higher income, but the big catch is it goes to charity on your death. But if that's what you were going to do anyway, it's a great solution. And then uh, another option is to use donor-advised funds. So when I'm sitting with a client, let's say they're giving 5000 a year to their church or to a museum. Um, instead, what we can do is say, hey, look, you've got $50,000 in one stock. Uh, it represents a significant part of your portfolio. You're giving 5000 a year to charity anyway. Why don't we move this 50000 to a donor-advised fund? That allows you to get an income tax deduction, sell it tax-free, and from that fund, we get the break this year, uh, but every year you can give 5000 from the fund to the charity. So we're giving to the charity what we're giving to give to the charity anyway, but we're also getting the benefit of an income tax deduction uh, that, that will be greater because you've made a bigger gift in one year and also able to diversify the stock today. And then lastly, there's a very aggressive way to do this that some of our younger clients have done that are very uh, risk on is we, we've we did this lately with somebody who was involved in a tech company and it went public and they wound up with $2 million, uh, but it's all one stock. And they don't want to sell the stock. So they actually borrowed against the stock about, you said borrowed about 20%, and that enabled them to go buy $400,000 of diversified funds. So their portfolio overall is actually a little less risky. And it then gave them other securities they can tax harvest and come back and sell. It's a little sophisticated. It requires a lot of, you know, you have to pay attention to something like that. And I'm always reluctant to discuss leverage as a risk reduction <laughs> strategy, but it can be a solution for, for folks as well. So there's a lot of different ways to approach it. Um, it and it's just, there, there are so many tools and, and the decisions someone makes around this can really have a ripple effect for decades. So we're talking here mostly about people who own stock in a regular taxable account and you know if they sell it you know they're going to take the capital gains tax it but of course a lot of people end up owning their own company stock in their 401k plan right. and you know ordinarily you can diversify in a 401k plan and there are no immediate tax consequences the tax consequences only come down the road when you start to draw down the account right. but a lot of people hang on to that company stock because of this strategy called net unrealized appreciation which allows them to to essentially pull the stock from the account when they leave the employer, move it into a regular brokerage account, and then at that point they can sell it and pay taxes at the capital gains rate rather than the usual income tax rate that applies to withdrawals from a 401k plan. So the, my question to you, Peter, is what's the advice? So you've got the stock. It's a substantial portion of your net worth. It's sitting in the 401k. You know, you're probably not going to leave your employer for 10 years. Do you, you hang on to that big stock position so you can get that tax break from the net unrealized appreciation strategy? Or do you go for lower risk and diversify today? So it, the answer is, uh, depends on the situation, but I, I, it's usually a hybrid. So what I like to tell clients is, how do we just make sure you're going to be okay? Let's create some baseline that no matter what happens in the world, you're going to be okay. Because a lot of people think, well, my company stock, um, my company's doing well. <clears throat> well, 
everyone thinks that, right? But let's just say they're right. Sometimes a company can be doing well and an entire industry can just get smashed, right? We saw it with real estate. We saw it with internet. We saw it with financials. We've seen it with energy, right? So you could be at a great energy company, but all energy companies have been smashed. And so we got that risk. And then sometimes your company's great, but the market just gets smashed, right? So there's a terrorist event, you're, everything gets cut in half, including your really great company stock, because the whole market got crushed. And so if we've got, if, if, we've, if we know you need a certain amount of money to be independent, let's try to get a reasonable strategy to get close to that. Now, once we've got some baseline to make sure you're not going to be destitute, I am all for taking a risk to have a major substantial tax break. And the difference between income tax rates and capital gains rates now is very, very great. Now, that might not be the case. You look at some of the candidates for president now really talking about closing that gap a lot and the whole math on how we're talking about this could change. But right now, the gap is so significant that I do encourage some clients that, hey, we've made sure that you're not going to live in this in a cardboard box in the street. Let's go ahead and take the risk here and hang on and just watch carefully and, and be able to take advantage of NUA on your retirement because the difference is so substantial. Even if your stock takes a hit, you could wind up ahead. Okay. So let's uh, transition to uh, our second big topic for today's discussion, which is generating retirement income. I mean, it's a huge topic, but the uh, the straw man, we always need to start with a straw right. man. The straw man that you hear from so many investors is, when I retire, you know, I want to invest my portfolio in such a way that I have enough regular income to cover my expenses. And for a lot of people, the net result of that thought process is I'm going to move, you know, a boatload of money into bonds, get enough yield so that, you know, I can pay my fixed expenses, I can pay for the travel I want to do, and they end up with this super conservative portfolio. And it at some level, it makes intuitive sense, right? And it yeah. seems like a, a safe strategy. But is it? I, th I think that you're right. You've hit the nail on the head. A lot of people have this bias of, I need to own things where I'll never have to sell anything and I can live off the income and that that's very low risk. And that that's not really the right way to look at it. We should really be looking at total return. How do we get between income and appreciation in the portfolio, everything someone needs? And when people take an income-only approach, you have a couple problems. Well, first of all, in today's bond world, bond yields are less than stock dividends. And so, in many cases. And so it's not really accomplishing a lot. But second, if we create a portfolio that's higher yield, and so you'll wind up with a portfolio that's bonds that are probably riskier. Okay, because we have conservative bonds, we're not going to get the three or 4% you need. We've got to own riskier bonds, lower credit ratings, lend money for longer periods of time, um, maybe do things we wouldn't normally do. Then we might own real estate. Then we might own master limited partnerships. Then, we, And we might, we'll own stocks that pay higher uh, dividends. We'll go look for stocks that pay 5% dividends instead of two. Well, the stock is paying 5% uh, because it's not as strong of a company usually as the one uh, paying two. And so you're going to be more susceptible to all sorts of risks of the portfolio, namely interest rate risk. So if interest rates go up and you have a portfolio that's very income oriented like that, the entire portfolio is going to get hit negatively at the same time by that rise in rates. So you think you're being conservative. 
by buying things that only produce income. But what you've really done is you've introduced a risk you didn't need to to the overall uh, portfolio. And so not only do you have that short-term risk from rising interest rates, which can really crush an income-oriented portfolio, mm -hmm. but of course, you also leave yourself vulnerable to inflation over the, the long term. You know, you know, year to year, you know, it may seem like prices don't increase very much, but over a 25 or 30-year Retirement, you know, a dollar of income by the time you reach the end of that retirement might only have 50 cents of purchasing power. Yeah. You know, you need to be cognizant of the the risk from inflation, and the way you fend off that inflation risk is to continue to keep a decent portion of your portfolio in stock so that you get that long run growth. And of course, that immediately raises this objection from investors, which is, oh no, I can't own stocks because stocks go down a lot and it's risky, and you know, what happens right. if we get another. 2007 to 2009, and my stock portfolio drops in half. You know, how will I, you know, pay for groceries and goodness right. knows what else? And I think that's the point when you need to have this conversation about having sort of a bucket approach to yeah. generating retirement income. You say to yourself, okay, you know. I want to make sure I have a certain number of years of re retirement income, or really portfolio withdrawals, mm -hmm. in super conservative investments. That so say you know, to be comfortable, I want five years of portfolio withdrawals in you know short-term bonds, in a money market fund, in certificates of deposit, stuff that I know is going to be there no matter what happens mm -hmm. in the financial world. And that way, you've got five years of portfolio withdrawals covered, and then that frees you up to invest the rest of the portfolio for longer-term growth. You can own somewhat riskier bonds, but more importantly, you can own stocks. Yeah. And over time, you know that portion of the portfolio should generate much healthier gains than a pure income-oriented portfolio. And then every year, if the market allows, you, know, you cut off a little bit of the gains and you refund that cash bucket that's going to cover the next five years or so. That's right. Right. And, I, and I think it's the thing about when people say, well, bonds are less risky or aren't risky. Every asset class is risky. They just have different sets of risks and their, and relative risks. And by looking, oftentimes with clients that are retiring and they want that income approach and they're 65, we'll, we'll Google the price of a candy bar and a, a soda and healthcare just 20 years ago because their life expectancies into their 80s. And it really opens their eyes to what you were talking about of, hey, yeah, if I get the same income five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, it's not going to do the same things. Year to year, it doesn't seem like prices change, but they change very dramatically over time. And on the flip side, while the stock market's incredibly unpredictable year to year, I mean, the odds are one in four, you'll be negative. Those are pretty high odds versus bonds where it's one in 10 and then negative is a much different thing. It tends to be a couple percent instead of 30%. But over 10 years, Stocks are closing in on 100% on, on being positive. It's not 100%, it's in the high 90s. But you you know inflation appears over 10 to 20 years in a big way. And you know stocks deliver uh, with a high probability over 10 to 20 years. And so you really shift, you reduce your risk by adding that asset class and starting to look at total return instead of just income. Yeah, I say to uh, to people now that I suffer from you know old person's disease. I'm, I'm 56, but every time I go to the grocery store, I am shocked by how much everything costs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that is a function of age, you know. Yeah. I just remember when everything was so much cheaper, you know. You know, even when I was a kid, you know, a candy bar was 10 cents. Yeah. And that is not true anymore. I have that, that same disease, but I, and I got it in a grocery store too. But what I realized that I was getting old is when I was wanted to linger in the grocery store longer because I liked the music. <laughs> that, 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 was, uh, that was the beginning of the end for me. And I've been having a, a crisis about 
how old I'm getting ever since. <laughs> so meanwhile, you know, inflation, it's, you know, that has this gradual erosion over time, you know, we sit there day to day fretting about whether stocks are, you know, good investment or not, or valuations too rich, or we could get another, you know, fifty percent market decline, and yet thirty years from now we will look back and say, why in the world did I own anything else? Mm-hmm. You know, time gives you that perspective, not only on the damage done by inflation, but also on the virtues of owning a diversified stock portfolio. Right, I agree. It's that time of the podcast, Peter. Your tip of the month. So, what's your month? Your tip for the month ahead. So, my tip of the month is if you if you've got a kid that's working, um, and whether they're mowing lawns or have a part time job or anything like that, uh, they probably are are using the money that they're 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 working really hard for, or saving it. But open up a Roth IRA for them. Uh, they can contribute um, up to the maximum amount and. Uh, that money will grow tax-free and come out for them tax-free, and especially if they're a teenager or in their early 20s in school. Um, that'll be a really amazing gift for them because it's going to be compounding for you know, 40, 50 years before they withdraw it. Now, let's, let's, let's have a moment of honesty here, Peter. I mean, the kid is really not going to put 100% right. of their warmer <laughs> earnings right. into the Roth IRA. So maybe you can get them to sort of split it with you, or maybe you put in 75 cents for every 25 cents they put in. Yeah. But I think there's going to need to be some sort of parental subsidy. No, there. I agree. If the, if the kid can do some of it, great. If the parent does all of it, fine. Uh, but either way, it's kind of a freebie that, that a lot of people forego uh, that the government will let you do. And there's no better time to put money in, an IRA, in a Roth IRA than when you're a kid, because you got so long for it to grow. So if you're thinking about making a gift to your kid, that's the way to make it to them. And of course, it is the power of example, because not only do you start them on a lifetime investing by opening up that Roth IRA, but also you can help them pick the investment. And whatever you pick, the kid is probably going to be super reluctant to sell it. And so you should make sure you pick something low cost, diversified, that they will be happy to hold for the long haul. That's right. And so actually, sort of on the same theme, you know, we're now into October, we're approaching the end of the year, and you probably have a pretty good idea of what your income is going to be for 2019. If you're in the position where you have relatively little income and you're looking at a year when you're not going to be paying very much in taxes, this is really a terrible, terrible thing. <laughs> and you should make sure that you take advantage of the fact that you have low taxable income for the year and look for ways to take advantage. And so, for instance, this might be the year where you convert part of your traditional IRA to a Roth and take advantage of the fact that you have relatively little taxable income. Earlier, we talked about having a big position in an individual stock. If you have big stock positions that you're looking to whittle down, if you have a year with relatively low taxable income, this may be the year to take some serious gains so that you have more taxable income and yet still pay taxes at a relatively low rate. Great advice. All right, Peter, it's the end of another podcast, and we are down the middle. This commentary is provided for general information purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. Past performance of any market results is no assurance of future performance. The information contained herein has been obtained from sources deemed to be reliable but is not guaranteed.